probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from harperwharris.com, and joining me again today is... Zachary T. Owen. I am a horror writer. You can pick up um, my books on Amazon.com, also barnesandnoble.com. Just put out a new book called Doomsayer. I hope uh, that you check it out and enjoy it. Yeah, it, it comes highly recommended from me, so definitely... Uh... It's got the the thing minute seal of approval. Can you get a sticker put on it and uh, you know, with that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have that made. <laughs> I'll, I'll have those made up and shipped out immediately. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Uh, so today we're talking about a uh, minute one hundred and four of the thing, which begins with a uh, Donald Moffat as Gary credit and ends uh, with the special visual effects credit for Albert Whitlock. So um, yes, we talked about uh, Donald Moffat yesterday, but the first credit uh, for today's is for Joel Polis, who plays uh, Fuchs. Um, the uh, the only kind of funny description for uh, for any of his characters was the mischievous Gary, uh, <laughs> who is uh, yeah somebody actually I think it was Rob on uh, an earlier episode brought up that he has a recurring role in Cheers as the rival bartender Gary, um, and I, I haven't really watched very much Cheers, but I, it sounds like they have like a um, an ongoing feud where they like prank each other and stuff, which sounds makes me really want to watch those episodes to see Fuchs um, doing that. <laughs> I actually intend to watch all of that show eventually. I, I have some memories of watching it when I was younger with my family, but it's just such an undertaking because it went yeah. on. For a yeah, long how many time. seasons? It's a lot. I think it was eleven. I want to say, and yeah. and it's like on average like twenty episodes per season. Wow, yeah, that's a lot. So, yeah. Uh, I might just stick to the uh, Joel Polis episodes. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking I would do a season here and there. I don't think I could do it all in one go. <laughs> um, so his uh, Wikipedia ent- entry did not have that much on it, but I did find uh, joelpolis.com, which uh, is his official website and is actually pretty well made and has a lot of interesting little things on there. So uh, according to the front page of his website, Joel Polis has 291 finished pro- uh, projects, 685 scripts memorized and 44 working years. So, um, memorized. Yeah, that was, that was my question. That's insane. There's no way. Like, is that implying that he still knows all those scripts? He could have a photographic (laughs) memory, I guess. Yeah. Maybe Joe Polis is, uh, is, you know, (laughs) some kind of secret savant that we don't know about, but yeah, maybe, maybe memorized for like an hour, like before he went on stage, but Yeah. (laughs) I find it hard to believe he's got 685 scripts currently memorized. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't have room for anything else at that point. I'm going to send him a message on his website and find out what He'll the deal is. He'll just quote script at you, though. He doesn't have anything else in his head. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that's left. <laughs> so interesting trivia about himself was that he uh, he was the firstborn of a pair of identical twins, which... When you say a pair of identical twins, I guess that means there were two sets of twins in his family, which is pretty interesting. Um, So, yeah, the twins thing goes along really well with the whole thing. Um, 
Yeah, somebody actually brought up uh, um, not that long ago in an episode uh, something I did not know at all about uh, about John Campbell. Do you know about his his mom being a twin? No, I didn't. Yeah, so there's this. Apparently, there's a story that uh, John W. Campbell, who wrote the short story "Who Goes There," that this is based on. His mother was an identical twin, and uh, his aunt, who looked exactly like his mother, uh, hated him. So he had this weird experience as a child where he would like think he was talking to his mother, and his mother would say something really mean or awful to him, and he wouldn't find out until later that that was his aunt and not his mom, which seems which. Yeah, you have to imagine that somehow uh, colored him while he was, you know, writing the thing or had some kind of influence. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, it's it's too weird of a coincidence to not be at least partially an inspiration for for who goes there for sure. Just to have this whole experience where somebody who you know who you think you know and love being acting like a totally different person is pretty yeah, unnerving. which is a pretty horrifying concept to me, and which is you know. The appeal and the thing for me, and as well as uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and all those types of movies. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the whole twin thing has definitely been a, a twist that's kind of been run to death. But the idea behind it of uh, that kind of thought process is still very t- scary. It's a scary thing to think about. Some other uh, interesting factoids about uh, Joel Polis is that he uh, he was a gymnast and he was actually uh, even joined a circus before. An injury pushed him into acting, much like uh, Kurt Russell. <laughs> Do you think there's also someone around, probably less likely, at a bar uh, saying, you know, because <laughs> everyone would be like, wait, who? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know that guy in the thing? <laughs> yeah, that guy, <laughs> that guy who dies off screen in the thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I like to think that maybe there's like a, a, a future time traveler who's gone back and, and caused the injuries of Joel Polis and Kurt Russell <laughs> so that the, otherwise the thing would never have been made. <laughs> that could um, be a Rick and Morty episode. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, I like, he has a section, Joel Polis has a section on his website called Skills where he has like these broken down skills with these uh, kind of strange like uh, progress bars. Like it says like, like 85% for like certain skills. So I'm not sure you know, exactly what that means. But under sports, he has uh, listed archery, dancing, snorkeling, and rappelling are all things that he does. Um, and then uh, under acting uh, dialects, he's got all kinds of dialects that he supposedly can, can do for different acting uh, jobs, uh, such as Scottish and Russian and Israeli, among many others. And then uh, he has all kinds of different acting trainings. So like I can't remember what they're called, but like those different methods, you know, that are named after classical actors and stuff. He, he's apparently done it all. So he's, uh, Joe Polis is the best actor of all time. <laughs> according, uh, like his website would make you think that for sure. He has, he's had a pretty good career. Uh, he's had a lot of uh, stuff on the stage and he's actually just started recently directing some of his own stuff. I think he just directed his own feature not that long ago, which is kind of cool. And then recently he's shown up in, uh, a Best Buy commercial, which I really want to find, a TV show called Girl, G-U-R-L, that I think I've heard of, but I haven't seen. And uh, he was a character in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, the banker, which I don't know if that was like a big character or if, like if that's a villainous name or if yeah, that's just it like sounds, a banker. Yeah, it definitely sounds like either it's a like a cameo role or a walk-on role or like, uh, you know, a major antagonist in an episode. Yeah, if it was just banker, I would say it was just like a throwaway thing, but the banker sounds a little bit more official. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so he seems like he's still doing, uh, doing pretty well, doing a good bit of stuff. And then the last kind of big acting credit we get is for 
Thomas Waits as Windows, so who now goes by Thomas G. Waits uh, yeah. for obvious uh, reasons. <laughs> I was thinking what you just uh, <laughs> verbalized. Yeah, um, yeah, and actually, uh, one of the things I read about him, his Wikipedia entry is super long and seems like maybe he wrote it himself. I'm not sure. Um, because Those are the it's, best ones. Yeah, because it's like way more detailed and maybe a little bit more generous than than like you know your average Wikipedia entry might be. But yeah, he actually started going by Thomas G. Waits after he met Tom Waits, and then uh, Tom Waits taught him uh, how to play a song on the guitar, and then I guess at, right after that. He started learning, and now he uh, he plays in a band called the Push-Ups. Um, oh wow, that's that's uh, really unexpected that he met Tom Waits and, and Tom <laughs> right. Waits like taught him how to play some music. I know, isn't that kind of odd? Like he's not like some huge, you know, celebrity like who just could you know through through a friend call up Tom Waits or something. So I'm not sure exactly how that came about. I'm curious. But yeah, he he went to Juilliard, and some of his classmates were Robin Williams and Christopher Reeve. One of his early roles that would have been really big would uh, he would have been one of the major characters in The Warriors, but he was fired over differences with the director. And uh, then he was in some uh, stage stuff. He was in a play called American Buffalo, and supposedly um, Kurt Russell and John Carpenter saw him in the in that play, and that's why they cast him as Windows, um, which. That's, I've never heard that anywhere else aside from that Wikipedia entry, but it makes me picture like a montage of John Carpenter and Kurt Russell like going around to plays and <laughs> movies and <laughs> like looking yeah, for actors. Yeah, that would be interesting. I, I believe that's a David Mamet play, American Buffalo, oh, but yeah. I'm not 100%. Interesting. That's not one I'm familiar with. But yeah, and now uh, Thomas G. Waits, is, uh, he runs a pretty successful acting studio called TGW uh, Acting Studio. And has uh, has trained some uh, some some actors that uh, I wish I'd written them down. I don't have any of the names. I think Vanessa Shaw was one of them, and oh, I can't remember who the there was somebody else on there I recognized. But yeah, it's a pretty pretty successful school out in uh, L.A. I guess. Uh, it's just kind of neat. So yeah, I wonder if he references back, like uh, you know, in this scene, you might want to take it a little bit like Windows would, like you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like Windows is not like the most uh, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't really show off a wide range of acting skills. So <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and then on the next screen, we get multiple credits. So we get uh, credits for the Norwegian and the Norwegian passenger. We talked about the Norwegian, the guy who played the Norwegian, I think, uh, in a past episode. But And the Norwegian passenger with the rifle is Larry Franco, who was also yes. producer and assistant director of the movie. So he's in a lot of shots as just kind of, you know, fill-ins for anybody before when they're shooting like a uh, second unit and stuff. And then uh, the helicopter pilot, Nate Irwin, who uh, I, um, uh, Todd Cameron from Outpost 31, when he was on, on the podcast mentioned that he found out that Nate Irwin's, I think it was his daughter, uh, is the owner of McCready's hat. Um, Cause uh, Kurt Russell gave it to her. She came and visited the set one day and he gave it to her as a, as a gift. So she's, she's the owner of that infamous ridiculous looking hat <laughs> that he wears in the movie. My favorite movie hat. <laughs> yeah, I think if I had to rank my favorite movie hats, it probably get, it's probably on the short list. And then also the uh, a, a pilot, William Zeman, and that this this movie was his only credit. So I hope that means he just didn't do any other movie work, and not that like he had a helicopter crash filming this movie or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, is that all he did was play that role? Did he have any other no, that, titles? That's on the, the only thing on IMDb is is. Uh, pilot, huh. He's a pilot for the thing. That's it. 
I'm going to hide this podcast when I'm finished. If none of us make it, at least there'll be some kind of record. We have no way of reaching the listeners to tell them to support the show by using the donate button at thethingminute.com while we're stuck here in this storm. If only they knew. <sighs> There's nothing else I can do. Just wait. Harper, out. The next screen's got all our stuntmen. Who uh, some of these guys have done some interesting stuff. So um, Anthony, I think I think it's pronounced uh, Cesar. So, um, he uh, he did the flame walk. Uh, he was the guy that got lit on fire when uh, Palmer the Palmer thing gets burned up. Um, he's done a lot of work on some other stuff like uh, Transformers and Spider Man and Ghostbusters. Larry Holt is kind of infamous in some nerd communities for uh, he plays some characters in Return of the Jedi that you can actually see his face in. I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's Tame Dren Garen. Uh, he's on Jabba's sail barge. And you can look him up. There's like a picture of him on like the Wikipedia of his character. So it's kind of funny to see the stuntman actually like become a part of the mythos. Um, and then he was Harrison Ford's stunt double when they did the uh, the Ewok net trap scene in Return of the Jedi also. So now I want to go back and watch that part frame by frame and see if I can spot him. <laughs> That's always fun. I love when uh, stuntmen don't look anything like the actor. <laughs> and if you pay close attention, <laughs> they just completely swap. Like it will be leading actor and then it's the stuntman very obviously. I'm sure they did uh, you know, a more subtle shot than that in uh, Star Wars. But sometimes right. you might be surprised. As, uh, as lovers of B-horror like we are, we, <laughs> you can definitely spot that a lot. <laughs> oh, yes, a lot see that all the time um eric mansker uh the thing was his first movie and he was also he also worked on they live and uh and he played uh <laughs> the only other credit that stood out to me he played shaquille o'neal's stunt double in curb your enthusiasm which um i don't know have you watched uh, any curb your enthusiasm i mean i know it's a pretty stunt heavy show right <laughs> right <laughs> Uh, I, it's funny because I was thinking that at first that like, what the hell kind of stunt would there be? But I remember the episode, the, the idea is that, uh, Larry David accidentally, he's got courtside tickets to the basketball game and he accidentally trips Shaq and causes him to sprain his ankle. And it like causes a major, you know, it like takes him out of the, out of the whole season or something. So like all these people like want to kill Larry David cause he <laughs> injured Shaq. So yeah, it's funny to think that this guy. Who I'm assuming, if he was Shaquille O'Neal's double, I'm assuming he was probably Keith David's double in this, maybe, um, for some of it. I'm not sure. I, guess, I would guess that's the closest person in this movie that has a build yeah. and complexion to Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, I'd be interested to see if I can spot him and then see him as uh, a Shaq in Curb. <laughs> <laughs> Clint Rowe, which I don't, I'm not sure why he's listed under stunt here. Uh, I know he has another credit. He's the dog handler for the movie, and he owned... Um, he owned Jed the dog in this, and he also interestingly owned uh, Beasley the dog, who plays Hooch in Turner and Hooch. So this guy owned... that was a family favorite. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie actually. You have to wonder, like I, I sometimes wonder. It's a it's a decent film. I mean, I don't know how it holds up, but uh, I liked it a lot at the time. And Tom Hanks is great. Um, but I always think, how many like dog trainers and owners are there in Hollywood? Like, are there a couple people with a monopoly or is it, you know, right. Are there large numbers? Is it a union thing? How does it work? Yeah. Like, like you have to wonder if it's like one or two guys and they, they own like eight or nine different kinds of dogs for different kinds of movies. 
like uh, uh yeah i think for this one you're going to want to use uh want to use this dog but yeah it's it is interesting cuz yeah i mean jed in this movie was a unique situation cuz he was part wolf so yeah. obviously you like really needed to be have somebody on set that was like could train the dog and make sure everybody was safe and um, i think we talked about it before but john carpenter said that jed was like one of the best actors he'd worked with yeah i mean he's amazing in this movie i i can't think of another like you know movie with an animal where the animals you know, acting was, was as important as it is in this movie. You know, it plays a huge role. So it, it definitely, I guess that's a credit to, uh, to Clint Rowe and his dog training skills. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure what, I don't, I'm not sure why he's under the stunt, uh, credit. I'm, I'm not sure what, uh, what stunts he did for the movie. Then there's a uh, Ken strain who's, uh, this was his only stunt credit, but after that, um, uh, like 10 years later, he started a career as a boom operator and is still doing that today. Uh, he's been doing it for like 25 years, which is interesting. So I'm not sure what what happened in between the thing and and then doing starting to do that. But yeah, this I is wonder the only thing in the hierarchy. For. Sorry, no, it's uh, okay. In the hierarchy of like you know uh, Hollywood and um, you know jobs on film, going from stunt to boom, like is that a step down or <laughs> <laughs> like it seems like it, but. You know, maybe he just wasn't cut out to do stunts. Yeah, I have no idea. I, I don't know. I don't know who gets paid more in that situation. I, like, yeah, I mean, I know a little bit about how much boom operators get paid, but I have no idea what kind of stunt. And I guess it probably depends on what stunts he did because he's the fifth. He's the fifth stuntman listed, so I imagine he was not like doing any of the big stunts. Maybe I don't know. But yeah, uh, and then the last stuntman listed is a guy named Rock Walker, which is like, I mean, the guy had to be a stunt stuntman with a name like that either that or like a race car driver <laughs> yeah, there's no other occupation <laughs> your name is rock uh it the only interesting thing i found for him was that uh one of his early credits is for a movie called bandolero that came out in 1968 which was uh also wilford brimley's first film role uh wow. it was in this movie where he played a stuntman <laughs> so wilford brimley and this guy rock walker were stuntmen together in 1968 and then again worked on the thing in '82 together as uh, you one. know. Isn't that weird? <laughs> it is weird, and it, I mean, there might be a way to do like six degrees of Wilford Brimley. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, I, I have to imagine, as a stuntman in 1968, Wilford Brimley had to be like riding a horse or like taming a bull yeah, or I, something. <laughs> I don't really see what else he would do, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, another weird, weird connection there. Next is executive producer Wilbur Stark. Um, couldn't really find very much about him other than that this was one of his last, uh, the last movies he worked on um, and that he died in 1995. So I guess he was fairly old when he was working on this movie. Then finally, uh, this far down in the credits, we finally get a based on a story, based on the story Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. And I was surprised to learn, I hadn't, actually I don't think I'd looked this up before, that this was basically the only movie or TV show ever based on any of his work, which is surprising given how much he wrote and edited and, and was involved in. Yeah, that seems to be the case for some writers. I don't know what it is, but uh, I can't think of another like prominent example. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I want to say like V.C. Andrews you know, was mm-hmm. a popular writer, but the only adaptation of her work was two versions of uh, Flowers in the Attic. Like some some writers, it's like they might have a lucrative uh, career with a lot of diverse and interesting writing, but they 
always have that one thing that had so such an impact that that's that's what people latch on to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for him, it was you know this one uh, story has spawned three movies at this stage, um, and you know a whole fan culture around this movie in particular. But yeah, nothing else. There was like one other thing where it was like uh, there was like an episode of a TV show that was like uh, characters based on or something like that. But that was the only other credit he had. So I was kind of surprised by that. Let me get the art director, uh, Henry Larec, um, who uh, I had to actually look up. I, I was curious to know what the differences between the art director and the production designer. And it sounds like basically the art director is kind of the, the assistant uh, production designer. Like they're the ones who actually, they take the creative ideas from the production designer and then kind of, deal those out to the different members of the crew to take, to actually build those parts of the sets or go find those props or stuff like that. So kind of like the assist, the second in command of the production design department. And then next up is the actual, uh, production man or production manager and first assistant director was Larry Franco and the assistant assist second assistant director. So kind of the assistant director department. And then, uh, the last for this minute, we get uh, special visual effects by Albert Whitlock, who is an, one uh, a guy who's had a pretty interesting and long-lived career, uh, mostly doing uh, matte paintings is what he did for this movie. And it seems like that's the main thing he did for a lot of movies. Um, he worked on the Star Trek, the original series, and uh, a couple of Hitchcock movies like The Birds and Marnie. And uh, The Sting was another one that stuck out when I was looking. But he's got hundreds and hundreds of credits. He worked on all kinds of stuff. So um, seems like he was one of the premier... Matt painters of, uh, of yeah, I'm, I'm hoping Matt paintings start to come back. Um, yeah, I really miss them. There's just something about it. I don't know. Uh, me, me too. I think I heard that there were some studios interested in bringing that back or read an article to that effect, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I'd love to see it because it is, um, when it's done well, it's such a, I mean, to, it's almost like how the, um, you know, doing the whole like reverse filming thing, like they do for some of the tentacle effects of this movie. Uh, it's like such a simple and old fashioned effect, but it works so well because it's slightly unreal, like to, just to the point where it's kind of uncanny and weird, but not to the point where it's like unbelievable. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly. Um, there's just sort of a a tone that you don't get with things, you know, that that aren't matte paintings. Uh, and and I think they really lend themselves well to horror and fantasy movies. Yeah, I agree. And sci-fi, you know, obviously. Yeah, and they can be done extremely convincingly too. Like, um, you know, there, there's a, I think I might have posted it uh, back when we did the episodes with the UFO matte painting. Um, that's like the biggest example of the matte painting stuff in this movie. But um, there's somebody put together these great GIFs online of uh, of all these matte painting effects from early silent movies and how they did some of these really amazing looking things that look a hundred percent real. Like you would never ever in a million years guess that the, a painting was involved and they do paintings that are like these weird shapes to only cover up like parts of the set. And it's pretty incredible. Um, it's yeah, it's definitely a, a something that I think, you know, it would be interesting to see that have a comeback because it's, it's something that's still probably could be done even better today, but just as it's still that kind of old fashioned effect. Yeah, and that's the uh, that's the last credit we've got for minute one hundred four uh, before we move into into the next one. So, yeah, so I think that'll wrap this one up. But um, you can always go to moviesbyminutes.com for a whole collection of other podcasts like this one. So um, 
you know, if uh, if the thing isn't your favorite movie, then your favorite movie is probably on there too. There's all kinds of good ones on there. So check that out and, and support those other shows. And in the meantime, don't forget to come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minutes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thethingminute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. Harper signing out.